Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. And welcoming you back to JM in the AM. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm, I'm glad the weather has gotten better and you're not under it anymore. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, as tall as I am, it's hard to get up, hard to get under anything, but thank God things are great. <laughs> and I appreciate that welcome back. I don't usually, I'm not usually the recipient of that type of, uh, of greeting. Um, well, you know what happened in the Shomron, and, and you and I have discussed this now more than uh, once over the last uh, couple of months, uh, and that is that uh, we, uh, as, as peaceful as times are, thank God, and as quiet often as times are, thank God, and with the great relationship that Israel has with so many countries in the region, thank God, nonetheless, there is the enemy who always finds creative ways to, uh, uh, to murder uh, our best in this case, uh, this young man in his twenties, married with a child under the age of uh, under the age of one. Um, I don't know what insight you can give to us, other than you know that this is the reality. Uh, I do know because you always report to us that the Israeli authorities, intelligence, etc., are stopping a lot of these attacks. But sadly, Malcolm, they continue. Yeah, it doesn't take any courage or any creativity to carry out the kind of cowardly terrorist attack that we saw that took the life of uh, one boy, uh, one young man, the father and uh, husband, and wounded two others who are, thank God, not in serious condition. Right. Just to open fire, it, it's, no, it's no courage. You just stand on a street corner, you go into an entrance, go anywhere. It doesn't take much planning. But what we have seen uh, over the last few weeks, the arrest of 50 people in a Hamas operation and prevented very serious attacks. We know that they had sniper operations around Israel uh, prepared and other uh, means of, of trying to carry out a large-scale uh, terrorist attacks that Baruch uh, Hashem were prevented. So you see that it's both organized and, and yet it inspires sometimes an individual just to go out, take a gun, and shoot somebody. It's the most cowardly act of, you know, people didn't have weapons. They were just driving home from, from uh, Yeshiva that day. Wow. Uh, and um, it, it is the dangerous. What terrorism? People think they're courageous. No, they're cowards. That's why they don't stand up against an armed force. So they don't stand up against, you know, somebody who can fight back. They, they attack the, the weak and the defenseless. And this is, uh, and clearly there is an, an asserted and concerted effort. And thank God uh, the intelligence has been quite remarkable in, in preventing it, but it's not foolproof. Malcolm, it sounds like, and again, I'm just, just the way you're reporting on this, it sounds like that as much as Iran, Hezbollah, the PA, and whoever else you want to cite, uh, you know, sponsors and funds and helps plan and carry out terror activities, it sounds like this one was... Literally, as you just described, just random, where somebody who has been inculcated with the hatred of Jews went out and decided to do something about it. Well, first of all, it doesn't exculpate Iran that has a role in in everything. And as you know, Hamas is building up its presence in southern Lebanon uh, alongside Hezbollah. That could not happen without Iranian approval. Right. And uh, they, it, it poses a whole new level of danger because their modus operandi is different. They're not as beholden to the people of Lebanon as Hezbollah is and has to be accountable for. 
the majority of people there and all these polls that are coming up lately uh, do not support and don't want to be they don't want to be put in the danger of the of the retaliatory strikes that will be necessary but at the same time Hezbollah builds up its capacity now we have the added element of uh, of Hamas and look at the statements that their leadership did on their 34th anniversary you know we're not giving up one inch of land mm-hmm. they they are reinforcing their messages uh, so it's it they need money there has to be somebody funding them and cutting off the oxygen is an important way, but it's not the, the total solution. Yeah. All right, you mentioned Iran, obviously in a different context, but boy, oh boy. Yeah, and, and I don't know if I should really start from this angle. I don't even know if it's fair, uh, you know, in, until we get to a point where there's some hindsight in history. I don't know if it's fair to even bring it up at this point. But, I mean, the, the there is a there is speculation now or analysis that the effort that Prime Minister Netanyahu at the time made to get the U.S. out of the Iran deal may be backfiring. Uh, I, I know we have a lot to talk about regarding Iran, but can we j- just start with that for a moment? Is it is, is there any uh, is there any uh, negative uh, aspect to what the U.S. did in light of um, uh, what's happening now with the possible deal with Iran? Well, this has been a subject of discussion by former heads of Mossad, by other analysts in Israel and elsewhere, that uh, questioning whether the pullout uh, by taking America away from the table. I think quite the contrary. The big mistake was providing tens of billions of dollars to them, which enabled them to continue their operations throughout the region. Uh, You know that the Iranian currency is in free fall. In the 100 days since Raisi became the president, I think it went from 31 or 32,000 toman to the dollar to 21,000 to the dollar. It's a free fall in, in every respect. The, the internal disruptions and anger, the fact that half the country is in drought, all of these things, I mean, there are many factors that are at play. So the presence of the United States, which does not sit at the table in Vienna in negotiations, they're in a separate room because they're not party to the deal. I think the uh, message is the sanctions work, that Iran has no interest really in a deal. They're moving ahead all of this time. They take advantage of the delays, which they insist on. And this is the seventh round of talks. And the, the uh, last one was in May and they, or June, and they insisted on these delays because they're using all of this time to enhance their nuclear program, their weapons program, in, in, in putting in the more advanced uh, uh, centrifuges. That, uh, it, the the uh, IEA people are not, International Atomic Energy people are not allowed to go to visit the site. That's not because America pulled out. America being in the deal would, would not have uh, made it any better for, for the uh, inspectors or uh, seeing that, in fact, we should be increasing the sanctions. Others in the region, like the UAE, Saudi Arabia, are all doing backdoor or frontdoor talks with uh, Iran because they lack the confidence in the United States. And they saw the United States has consistent messages, tough policy, clear lines. And that they can trust, then they react accordingly. Now there's a sense that there's no sure lines, and no in general, the Europeans, of course, are are always feckless in this regard. That the it's the message that they say, you know, in the Middle East, people act on perception, not necessarily reality. And and we have to think in their terms. And what we've done is to sow all of these seeds of of doubt about where where we stand. and in the meantime, Iran just builds up its capacity at the expense of its people who 
would welcome any, any the sanctions and other things if it meant that their life would be better and the oppressive regime uh, would be removed. Right. Um, somewhere I read about uh, cameras that were uh, either guaranteed to be on the uh, right, and, and, yeah. th- and those cameras, the Iranian officials make sure don't work or are covered up, etc. I mean, there were there iPhone sixes. So they, the, uh, the, these are these are uh, special cameras that are affixed to the entrances to places like Natanz and Karaj. Karaj, nobody has seen the inside. They're making the more advanced centrifuges there. Natanz is football field size building. If you remember, is uh, somebody. Uh, took out, uh, and there were uh, there was a huge explosion, fire knocked down. But nine months later, it's back functioning. Uh, it's underground. It's it's uh, hardly accessible. But the building materials had explosives in them. Let alone drones that came and other aspects, including supposedly the co-option of some of the nuclear scientists uh, in it. So the the videos and the cameras that was the inspections regime. And the inspectors were supposed to be allowed to go there to look at the back footage of the cameras and to see what was going on. If they were bringing in what they were bringing in materials, et cetera, you can tell from that what the activities. And in fact, what they did is they took the cameras, the Iranians took the films, destroyed the cameras, refused to share them. And even now, after they've reached an agreement, a, a, a partial agreement with the International Atomic Energy Agency, they are not allowing them access to the cameras, and they are, are, are not living up to any of the responsibilities that they undertook uh, as part of the, to, to avoid being sanctioned by IEA, which would mean that, the, that they would be go before the Security Council. This is the threat now, and they are working feverishly that to avoid that, and of course, incorporated that is a lot of threats right but if action or reaction speaks louder than words the u.s and the u.n security council are being played for fools when these camera episodes happen and the way they react it doesn't seem that they that it bothers them enough that and i think that's enough of an indication that they are willing to let iran get away with stuff because when when a an egregious violation like this whether it's an official legal violation or not is not my point. But when something like this happens and they don't react the way you would think, you know, someone who's being played as a fool would react, it seems to tell us that they're really willing to give Iran a pass on these things. Yeah, and the, and the guise is that they don't want to upset the talks in Vienna right. by reacting too strongly, when in fact the only message that works in Vienna is that they see that we're really going to be, be tough you know, we know that Iran is now preparing another space launch, which is advances more than the space activity. It is to, to advance their ballistic missile capacity, which is the delivery system. So on every front, uh, we see we have increased sanctions. The United States has put more sanctions in on some individuals and things, but it's not the kind of collective um, uh, sanctions that are really uh, critical. Uh, and and we see that the Raisi announced he's visiting 15 neighboring countries. Their decision is to go east to look to China, Russia, and the uh, Muslim countries of Middle East, uh, from I guess Pakistan to Azerbaijan, as their trading partners and to build up their economic relations there. And not going turning towards Europe and the United States. The truth is you can't substitute for them, but it is an orientation that is different. So they are building in. The, the defenses, the mechanisms, as they continue all of their nefarious activities, again, at the expense of their people, uh, who are not, don't have food, who don't have medicines, don't have other things, not because of sanctions, 
but because of their government's priorities are, are not to benefit the people. They're taken care of. The leadership is taken care of, but not the people. All right, and we can't leave the Iran issue without bringing up the biggest point of the week, and that is that uh, both in terms of their statements, maybe you would say in terms of their behavior, I'm talking about the administration in Jerusalem, uh, the way they're talking, uh, the way this issue of the refueling tankers not being available at the moment from the U.S., and that being a big story, uh, it, it seems almost more than ever, and it's hard to believe that Netanyahu, the, the Netanyahu era would not have been considered you know, at that point more than ever, but it seems more than ever that Israel is publicly telling the world that we are ready to strike Iran, and but, but it seems to be more of a realistic uh, um, a way of going than it has in the past. Is this now the hottest point that we've been at in terms of Israel, you know, ready to 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 strike? I would say that uh, the threats are credible, that Israel is serious. They don't have a, sh- a choice because once the facilities become hot, meaning once they have uh, are already advancing towards a nuclear weapon and they're enriching at 60%, they're moving faster and faster. They now use the IR-6s, the centrifuges, which means that they can do it much faster, much more sophisticated. You know, Israel has demonstrated its capacities. It's destroyed 75% of the weapons of the ship by Iran to Syria. And, and, and yet Iran doesn't get deterred. They just keep shipping and they send more and more sophisticated stuff into, into Iran. Their space program advances. They and they see that the weakness among some of their allies, that some of their neighbors in the region, who are certainly not allies of theirs, uh, advances as well. Israel uh, can't wait, therefore, for it to become hot because then you can't blow up a building because the radiation, everything would spread. Wow, I never uh, thought of that. And, and wow. uh, so you have to act uh, just before that happens, you know, before they start dropping the. Uh, when the final shoot drops, it's it's too late. And we have to assume they, uh, that Israel knows sorry. exactly what point they're at, right? I mean, just based on uh, prior operations that Israel has conducted in Iran, we have to assume that they know exactly what they're up to there. And I think that's the big deterrent. It's that the you know the, they live in fear of the Iranian leadership because they've seen how Israel has been t- able to take out the head of their, their nuclear department, how they have co-opted people, how they uh, how the level of information is very exact and, and very, uh, very uh, accurate, uh, very precise, to say, say the least. And uh, so Iran is working on multiple fronts. They have their domestic attacks, you know, supporting the Houthis, Hezbollah, Hamas, etc., Libya. They are working on the, the, the nuclear program's three parts. And they are also now reaching out, as, and why it's important that they see this regional approach, and that even the UAE, arch enemies, Saudi Arabia, are talking to them. So they're saying, look, time, time then could be on our side if you, if you wait long enough, everything sort of comes around to you. And, uh, you know, there's, there isn't this consistent sense of fear of what the West could do. Certainly Germany, France, and Great Britain, the three important interlocutors in the talks uh, who remain, along with Russia, China, um, they have proven to be gutless wonders. And, and, the, um, and the fact is that the regime is in trouble. There are, the demonstrations are continuing. The people, the unrest in the country is, is very great. 
Uh, it's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world of web, at NachumSiegel.com, and the NachumSiegel Network, around the world of web, at NachumSiegel.com, uh, and of course on the NSN app. I'm, I'm thinking to remind everybody about the banner at the top of NachumSiegel.com, the banner at the top of the NSN app. Our year-end giving campaign is now live. Give what you can to support us. Keep programming like this going. Again, the top of NachumSiegel.com, the top of the NSN app. Uh, so, Malcolm, what do you make, then, of the delay, quote-unquote, of these fuel tankers and the U.S. declaring that they're under back order? I mean, is, is this a tactic? Is this a deterrent? Um, you know, we, we're going to do everything in our power to make sure Israel doesn't strike, or is this literally a supply chain problem? Uh, I think that there are various factors involved. There is a supply chain problem. Uh, there's also a back order of planes and these planes are scheduled to be delivered in four years, which is what the contract called for. Right. And there's and two of them out of the four. Israel obviously wants to expedite it because it gives the capacity to support dozens of planes. These fly, planes that fly 24 hours, and they provide fuel refueling capacity in air to uh, to dozens of of uh, planes. So it's really vital for any kind of long-term, long-distance operation. Uh, I, I hope members of Congress will intervene. I hope that there will be some rectification of this. Uh, and, then, and the danger, again, is not just that Israel needs it. They're flying planes that are 50 years old for this purpose. Um, but it's also the message, both to Iran and to Israel's neighbors, you see how Egypt has reached out to the Lapid visit others. There's a lot going on in terms of cooperation, not yet at the people level, but others, because if they, they want an Israel that's strong and reliable and, and also as a road to Washington, if they believe that, that the relationship between the United States and Israel is such that they can't even get uh, an aircraft expedited, and there are those who like they did with the um, funding for the Iron Dome. You know, they were said that they right. was defeated. It was defeated. It wasn't defeated. It was a, that was a lie. It was a distortion. It, there were nine votes against it. And then it, and when they came up the next week, the vote was 420 to 9 or 10 because, you know, it was a technical thing. Here, there could be technical aspects, but I think there's more than that. What about the Senate vote on Iron Dome? The Senate vote in Iron Dome is still being held up by Senator Rand Paul. And, um, I mean, is it fair to say that it's consistent with his position in general, that he's generally not into providing aid for countries around the world, or we're being, or I'm being too generous to him saying that? He's an ordinary character, and he has, um, you know, he has his own views, and he pursues them for, it could be technical reasons, it could be other things, but the fact is that this is, a defensive weapon is vital for Israel's security, and there is no justification. I know it's a frustration of a lot of his Republican colleagues that people have worked very hard to try and get it to to reverse it. <laughs> but so far, he's still it's just one man holding up. You know, also there are other senators who are holding up the nominations of the uh, of the ambassadors. I think there are 30 countries that don't have U- U.S. ambassadors. Uh, which is not good. Hmm. By the way, speaking of uh, Kentucky, and and we alluded to it because of Rand Paul, um, apparently Israel sent rescue teams to the ravaged states that got hit by the tornado last weekend, which we 
need to we, we did. yeah we which we need they to keep did. in mind and spread the word about as you know as Israel's being BDS'd all over the place. We got to remind the world uh, that they're sending people you know thousands of miles to help rescue people who who might still be alive. Well, unfortunately, Israel has tremendous expertise in it, but it wasn't only that. They sent water. They sent other things right. from Israel to to uh, to Kentucky. And it, what, but it doesn't matter. I'm sure that they'll be, they'll find some reason to condemn it and say that Israel has aspirations to <laughs> occupy Louisville or something <laughs> that uh, will, will turn it on its head. I hear that. Um, you you may not be the right target for these comments because <laughs> as much as we argue about, you know, uh, which things fall into your domain and what things do not. I don't know if this topic falls under anyone's domain anymore. Uh, I, I think we're extra sensitive here in this studio because our trip just got canceled. We had a big broadcast trip, as you know, for December, was, which was postponed three times and then eventually scheduled for the last week in December. And now, of course, with the new regulations, that's not going to happen. I, I don't know how long this corona is going to last. I don't know what your feeling is about how the prime minister is handling things. But I, in the bigger picture, and maybe I'm making too big of a deal of this, but in the bigger picture, this disconnect between Israel and the diaspora, which, again, we could argue if Israeli officials need to be worried about that. I think historically we know that they do, but okay. I, I'd like to get your comment on that in a moment. Uh, but uh, this disconnect between Israel and diaspora continues to get deeper and deeper and more severed and more severed. So forget for a moment if we're allowed in tomorrow or not. Just philosophically, and in terms of the future of the relationship between diaspora Jews and Israel, I think there's a tremendous amount of suffering going on, and that we're going to anticipate down the road. Down the road, I think that there is a problem, especially uh, with young people. Although the masa, the birthright trips were exempted, right? Uh, but I know many, many groups that have not gone. And yes, but on the other hand, I think. For a lot of people, it woke them up. They took Israel for granted. They talked that it will always be that they always have access that, you know, they can go and come when they want. And for many people, I think it's built up the longing and the connection, the sense of connectivity, because they feel the, what it's meant in their lives that they were not able uh, to go. It looks like uh, it could happen in the next few days that America will be declared a red country, which will entail a longer quarantine for visitors coming from the United States. Israelis going to the United States, seven other countries were added this week. More will be added. Um, the uh, You know, there's an expected surge. It's already started, but in, in many countries for the winter. Uh, and the, the, the limitation has been extended to through December 29th already and could well be extended into January, which it is very unfortunate. I think it's a, a terrible thing that uh, people have been separated from their families. I can't tell you how many, you know, cases we've tried in to see there, you know, where there was real necessity for people to be uh, in Israel. Uh, but, you know, they're going by the signs they say or by the, uh, the best estimates. Everybody understands the, the damage to the tourism industry, which is economic. And you have to think of the second level of the suppliers, the yep. cleaners, the, Everybody, I mean, it has such a broad ramification uh, in the country. Uh, so, you know, nobody can take these decisions lightly, but they, the cost of, of, you know, wider spread and more intensive uh, illness, they, they, when hospitals, again, are finding it difficult to accommodate all the critical care cases, 
this is um, even, you know, it's a decision I wouldn't want to have to make. Yeah, I get that. But even with your analysis, the tone of your voice tells me that you've given up on trying to figure this thing out already. I mean, I know you've said figure that. Figure it out? Never. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It, it's so frustrating. It could drive you crazy. All right, a couple of more things. What did you make of the uh, UAE Crown Prince meeting with the Prime Minister of Israel this week? I think that it was a very important statement and came at the time of an Arab summit that MBS, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, convened in Riyadh, attended by Ibn Qatar and others, uh, Oman, uh, Bahrain, Kuwait. Um, the interesting thing there is that the king, uh, King Salman, was not there. He has not been seen in about 20 months. I think he had one appearance. Uh, and when Macron came, it was the crown prince who, who greeted him and, and met with him. And obviously, it dealt with a lot of issues um, related to Iran. And uh, as so at the same time as they're having talks, which have not yielded any breakthroughs, I think there were more men to try to prevent attacks on their countries by the UAE, Saudi Arabia, than acceptance or some big shift in terms of their um, uh, relationship with uh, with, Iran, with Iran. So coming in that setting, it was very important mm. that not only that he, he that Bennett was accepted in such a public way, right. but also that the Crown Prince there accepted an invitation to come and visit Israel. And it reflects a broad depth to the relationship that this is not just superficial, that it's a piece of the people. You know, relationships, let's say, with Israel and Egypt have really improved greatly. And Egypt is doing a lot in Gaza. And Lapid was there, and it was a high-profile visit uh, where uh, Al-Sisi, you know, uh, welcomed him. And Al-Sisi is, by the way, doing wonderful things to restore Jewish heritage sites in Egypt. Wow. Morocco, but this week announced hundreds of new sites, synagogues, heritage sites, Jewish heritage sites that they are restoring and rebuilding. Uh, but in Egypt uh, as well, and it doesn't get much credit. He's tried to change the textbooks. He's done a lot. Unfortunately, it doesn't seep down yet to the people, but more and more exposure uh, makes, uh, makes a difference. So these visits, which may seem to be pro forma, are, are really of significance and sends a message to, to uh, Turkey, Iran, others uh, who are very unhappy when they, uh, when they take place. But the, there, there are a lot of visits. That's why I mentioned what the, the charm offensive by Raisi visiting all these countries and others, um, that there, there's a lot of tumult, a lot of turmoil that's going on that doesn't make the press, but are, is very critical. And the beneficiaries, China goes into each situation and exploits it. Russia goes into each situation and exploits it. And those those things can have really long-term consequences. Uh, that's interesting, the relationship with Israel and Egypt, which... Uh um, I, I appreciate you bringing that to our attention. What would you say about Israel and Saudi Arabia? It seems like everything that we are hearing is that things are, are improving constantly, but we really don't get any details. Like We don't hear much about what's really happening behind the scenes. Are, are, are they also enjoying a better and better relationship? I think that there's more and more going on. There is more trade and exchanges and much more openness. Uh, they said again this week that they can't establish diplomatic relations until the Palestinian issue is resolved. <clears throat> That's a play both to their domestic constituency and because of Iran's tumult with the Shia population in Saudi Arabia. But um, there, there are uh, uh, steps forward, I would say, that, that are taking place. 
Clearly, there's coordination on the security level. The UAE, by the way, participated in and had observers in the massive uh, Air Force maneuvers, uh, the blue flag maneuvers that took place just recently. Record participation by many countries from the, from Europe, from the, the region. Uh, Jordan even uh, participated uh, in it. So. You know, there's there's much more going on in terms of visits, exchanges, uh, desire to enhance the existing uh, operations. I've met with the ambassadors and officials from many of the Gulf countries just in the last few days and week, and uh, I see that the the openness, the desire for it. The problem is often that the the lack of clarity here about policy, the 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 um, stimulation, everything is coming externally and not from here. So if there's a um a desire to see the ceremony, to you know, have the formal signing and all that. You, you basically would say to us, just ignore all that and know that behind the scenes, everything's progressing the way it should. Yeah, I, I don't know that the you know having formal diplomatic relations is really the uh, critical test. More right. countries are opening offices uh, in Jerusalem uh, and are making the right kind of statements. About it. By the way, um, Ukraine opening up an embassy yeah. in Jerusalem is 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 trying to get Israel to choose sides of of Russia versus Ukraine, or, or really that it's completely well, above. You saw the president and others who have made very strong statements about the relationship with Israel. Israel is helping the uh, Ukraine, not against Russia, but this, this is a long-standing relationship. They're opening a branch of their embassy in Jerusalem, meaning I think they're not closing the Tel Aviv one, but they will have. A branch embassy, and say a consulate in um, in Jerusalem. Obviously, that's important. Uh, the tension there is very, very big, and, and nobody should dismiss it. People right. don't generally care what happens. You know, in these bur- these are not border skirmishes, though. This is a very serious battle in the heart of Europe. It, it involves the NATO. It involves the EU. It involves I mean, it's potential for full. More. It's potential for full scale war. When you have 175,000 troops building up on the on yeah. the border, and they and they've demonstrated they did it before, they did it with the Crimea, you know, Putin, that Putin sets his mind on something and he he moves. So, um, yeah, nobody should should dismiss the possibility here. I don't think it's just grandstanding. The United States took very strong response to it in terms of the economic, but, no, but not in terms of military involvement. We keep reading about Erdogan and his policy, his economic policies being complete failures. Most of the public there in Turkey having no confidence at this point, and I guess you would say that their economy is in some type of a free fall. Uh, a strong Turkey is better for Israel, or a weaker Turkey is better for Israel? Well, it depends who's in the leadership and what their policy is. Under Erdogan, obviously, a stronger Turkey means that they can create more problems. Uh, Turkey still hosts Hamas leadership in, in Istanbul. The the currency there is down 45% in a year. The, the lo- local situation, remember, we have a big Jewish community there, significant Jewish community that we, we are concerned about. We don't want to see the people uh, suffering. But an indication is that the street vendors sell half bagels now in Istanbul because people can't afford, seriously, they're not a joke, to, to buy the whole thing. And, wow. um, and, and you know, Erdogan keeps firing the central bank uh, president, and uh, he's, he, he is opposed to, to the call that is growing for elections. Uh, amongst young people, unemployment is very high. 
and uh, you know they they have a very severe uh, situation. The economic situation is, is devastating, but his adventurism also continues, and you know he. Uh, puts out the nice words every once in a while for Israel, but at the same time pursues very harsh policies. And Turkey itself is, is facing uh, both the domestic unrest and at the same time it is um, uh, trying to expand. It's building mosques all over the world. He, it, there are a lot of aspects to, to Turkey's um, operations that, that don't get much press coverage. But our significant Turkey is this big country. It's a strong country. It's a member of NATO at the same time as it's now saying it's going to negotiate more purchase of weapons from Russia. Uh, and this for Russia, you know, Turkey was always called the soft underbelly mm-hmm. going back to Zara's days. So for them, it's a, it's a big thing. And they, but they continue the war against the PKK, against the Kurds, uh, and stepping it up often. Malcolm, I know this is not your issue. I really should bring somebody in from the organization to just uh, clear this whole thing up for us. Uh, but uh, if in the last minute you could just, I don't know, brief us on, on what you know. I always thought, as APAC announced that they're form- that APAC Political Affairs Committee is forming a political action committee, I always thought for the last many, many decades that that's the one thing APAC's not allowed to do is be a political action committee. Is this something you could give us a brief overview about? Well, it is a different, uh, it is a shift in strategy from their past activities, and the focus will be on those who are supportive of Israel. And to, um, it, it is a major change, I think, in their orientation. Uh, that, uh, but but it, it has to be a separate entity. There are organizations, J Street has a PAC, others have PACs, that uh, they used to, to expand their leverage to be able to support directly candidates. APAC till now could not support financially candidates. They could invite certain ones to speak or others, but they would, because of the 501c3, meaning tax-exempt organizations, are very limited. We are very limited. Others are. And we have a, a, a non-tax-exempt entity that we was already established in the time of Fulbright back in the 60s, because the, they would come after Jewish organizations. There was supposed to be a 5% limit on lobbying, i.e. political activity. Um, and that has become more more relaxed over the years. But still, there is this restriction. So I think APAC will create a new entity that will be a public affairs action committee. And a political action committee is allowed to give donations to particular candidates to raise money and to support them more openly. So there'll probably be two APACs going forward. There will be yes, it's it's wow, uh, you know like the uh, like the embassy of uh, Ukraine it will be a branch, but but it will be a, it has to be by right. law a separate entity. Interesting. If, in order for it to engage in those activities, it's funny because my reaction. I and mean, look, you, you know the house I grew up in, so <laughs> I'm sure you understand my reaction. But the first thing I said was, "Why did they do this 50 years ago?" <laughs> like we know how important it is to support candidates that are you know uh, in Washington uh, doing our bidding, so to speak. Excuse the expression why didn't they do it 50 years ago they're not doing our bidding they're doing america's bidding right and it's america's interest I, i'm not but it's important for people to put these things in the right context and to to uh, address it that it, it, look there are members of apac who have contributed and who and they certainly hosted members and it was appropriate activity um 
and the separation w- was good. It, it creates a lot of pressure situations on them too for for everyone who everybody will want to be recipients of, of funds. Uh, so basically, who isn't, right. so basically, the, may the, be problematic. So basically, the answer to why they didn't do it fifty years ago is they they would would have preferred to have avoided this, but they feel it's just necessary at this point. I think it's necessary, you know, and, and the question they have about they're still uh, um, debating about the next big conference, which were very valuable. People look forward to it yep. from around the country, yep. up to 18,000 people. But the fact is it cost them tens of millions of dollars to do it, and that money can perhaps be better allocated. APAC does really terrific work. They don't get enough credit in our community um, because, like us and others, they, you know, we don't always say what somebody may want to hear at the moment, but that has nothing to do with the reality of the activities in which they are engaged or or the conference or others are are engaged today. It's so much more important and and vital. And unfortunately, you know, they can't just say whatever they want to say. There are people who have that liberty because they don't really have any responsibility and you can have and do what you want. Um, In this case, APAC, uh, this was a very deliberative process. It didn't just make an announcement uh, one day that they decided to reorient. Right. Got it. Uh, I thank you. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak again next week. God willing. Look forward to it. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Friday, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time right here at JM in the AM.